Hello, welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. We all know that we are in a dire climate crisis right now, with the window for averting horrific climate catastrophe narrowing by the day. And the Green New Deal has totally reshaped the conversation about what kind of politics we need to fight climate change. But the question of how we assemble the social forces to actually fight and win that Green New Deal is something that we don't talk about as much. Matt Huber tackles this question in our journal Catalyst in his article, Ecological Politics for the Working Class. I talked to him about that article and what it means for socialist strategy. And I'll put a link to our store where you can buy Catalyst and read his article in it. Matt Huber is an associate professor of geography at Syracuse University. He's a regular contributor to Jacobin and is the author of Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom, and the Forces of Capital. And he's currently working on a book on class and climate politics for Versa Books. Here's Matt. Matt, hello. Hey. So let's start with the beginning here, or maybe the most basic question. What is wrong with how we think about environmentalism today? Well, at a basic level, um, so much of environmentalism has a sort of focus on politics of less and consuming less and coming out of this real discomfort with the, the cultures of mass consumption that really grew out of, to be frank, <laughs> that actually grew out of massive labor and working class victories in the post-war era. This anxiety around consumerism and mass consumption has led to a kind of ecological politics that um, basically traces all ecological problems and impacts back to consumers. So the way in the article I talk about this is ecological footprint analysis basically the whole premise of these footprint analyses is that it's consumers that are driving the decisions in the larger economy and that should be held responsible for those impacts associated with consumption. So if you're um, driving a car, the emissions coming out of your tailpipe are your emissions that you are responsible for. And not to mention all the emissions embodied in the car that was produced, say, um, in <laughs> 40 different countries around the world, um, all those emissions are traced back to you as the consumer who's deriving benefits from this car, so therefore you should be held responsible. Um, and so this, this footprint analysis basically makes it any politics of material gains or any politics of even something basic like increasing wages is sort of inherently ecologically damaging and inherently a source of, of footprints. And that you can see how that kind of politics has very, very little mass resonance in an age of, you know, enormous inequality where, um, you know, huge, most people are in debt <laughs> and have witnessed stagnating wages and um, are really living increasingly precarious and insecure lives. So this idea that the answer to our environmental crisis is everyone to kind of tighten their belts, accept these kind of austerity logics is 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 not really going to appeal to um, the large majority of people in the neoliberal capitalist society. I think of this ad that I remember that the anti-consumerist magazine Adbusters made, I think in the 90s, I don't know if you've ever seen this, where there's the world and then in the center of it is like a giant pig 
and it's just like yeah. making a bunch of oinking noises and it's talking about how the consumers in the US average average citizens of the US consume x amount more than uh, average citizens of Mexico x amount more than citizens of India etc and the whole idea if you are you know the, the symbolism is not subtle it's like you the american are a pig you are disgusting. Yeah. Look at you just guzzling down all these resources. And it's sort of funny that this comes in the in the 90s or 2000s or whenever it came out, obviously at a time of high austerity for the vast majority right. of Americans, for the right. American working class, which is the vast majority of the country. Uh, right. and, and so obviously that kind of politics doesn't see that vast majority as the agents of transforming the world it's like no those are the, the they're the piglets they're the ones that wag yeah. your your finger at um which is kind of a marxism 101 thing right is like the 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 working class is the vast majority of society and they have both the material interest and the social power to change society so that's why we look to them as the agent of change and yeah. uh so that kind of finger wagging environmentalism uh it's it's it your part of your argument is that it's hard to see it's having much of a you know, political future, much of an ability to actually change things in society for the better. Yeah. I mean, so much of environmentalism is this critique of excess and kind of like you said, sort of this pig-like greed and kind of overstuffed. I think there's a book called like the overstuffed American and, and things like this. So, and there are, I mean, there's truth to that. I mean, the way in which American working class life is organized often requires a certain level of consumption um, that uh, some would say is high, but you know, if you don't have healthcare and you're and you're mired in credit card debt and you're working two jobs and you're you don't have any time, um, but yet you're you know you're consuming gasoline to get to and from a job that's very far away, and 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 you know there's sort of these consumptive practices that are locked into your life. Um, yeah, if you hear people saying like the problem is you. And your gasoline consumption, um, people are not going to respond well to that. They're going to find themselves uh, believing the what, what is a very right-wing talking point, which is that environmentalism is just sort of this elite liberal uh, conspiracy to um, you know destroy people's lives and change their lives for the worse. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that, as you said, you're responsible for driving the car or consuming the, the stuff that gives you the the carbon footprint or whatever. But average people don't get to make the decisions about what the inputs to the goods that they need to survive are, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we, we don't uh, – capitalism is not democratic in the way that we choose to what – we, what we produce and, 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 and thus what we get to consume – and so, you know, every the, there's only there's a tiny minority of people who are making those decisions, yeah. uh, and the average citizen has no say in right. you know whether or not they get a job that's close to where they work, whether or not the car that they're driving is one that burns fossil fuels, uh, etc. Uh, so it, it just it doesn't like make any sense to point the finger at those individuals. But you talk in the piece about how it is that we came to blame individuals for the environmental state that we're in. Can you unpack some of that history? Well, on the one hand, it, it, it really has its roots, I think, in 
1970s, uh, really the 60s and the 70s, which is a really tumultuous time in our history where a lot of political ideas and things were shifting. Um, but one of the big focuses of a lot of uh, movements at that time um, on the left and the right was was a real critique of, again, the kind of excesses of this post-war suburban mass consumption society. And so from the right, uh, you had people like Alan Greenspan and neoliberals saying, well, this is obviously too affluent. Like we need to, the, we have overshot our kind of what is reasonable for society to materially expect. And we need to kind of check those expectations. And so the answer to that was austerity. It was cutting social programs. It was deunionization and, and basically, you know, a huge narrative of the 70s was that unions were so greedy and that their greedy uh, wage increases were pr- causing inflation and causing the price of goods to increase. So we need to check these kind of, again, excessive greedy demands that this affluent society has. Um, but at the same time, at the exact same time, you have the environmental movement, which comes out of a politics that is also calling into question this affluent society as being the cause of this environmental destruction. So you have the limits to growth report that comes out in 1972. Um, You have people like Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb, but he also wrote a book called The End of Affluence, which is a real critique of modern consumer society. Not to mention you have a whole kind of new left kind of critique of the alienation of mass consumption and suburban um, alienation, homogenization of post-war consumer culture, um, which has a lot of, you know, correct (laughs) left-wing critiques of commodification and all that stuff. But ultimately, sort of on a lot of different people were sort of seeing this kind of mass consumption society as the source of all our problems and that we need to kind of, again, um, this society had overshot our expectations, then we need to kind of get it back to reality. So an environmentalist would say, you know, we are about to overshoot our material carrying capacity as a planet back to reality, back to austerity, essentially cutting our footprint, cutting our consumption. And um, at the same time, you have the, you know, the post-war period is noted by expanding kind of middle-class professionals in the suburbs who, who are starting to be aware of the environmental impacts of this affluent society and are starting to sort of become quite anxious and guilt-ridden about their own kind of complicity and participation in um, ecological degradation. And so it becomes very easy to see how people saw their lives, uh, their lifestyles, as, as sort of very materially intensive and therefore very excessive and therefore um, causally the, the thing we need to deal with in terms of solving the environmental crisis. So on all fronts, they're sort of pointing to this kind of austerity. The obvious point is that there is huge overlap between the kinds of calls for personal austerity that this environmentalist movement is making with the demands of the bosses at the negotiating table or the, or the management who's smashing the unions like – you know we're we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna cut back your consumption one way or the other. Whether it's you yeah. know because if you put on a if you put, if turn the thermostat down and put on a sweater, I think as Jimmy Carter said, yeah. or as if the boss is gonna you know forcibly take the kinds of uh, wage and benefit gains that that the working class had won through struggle uh, away from them into the period of neoliberalism. There's obviously huge 
overlap there. Although it, it get it now has this kind of uh, new moral gloss on it, like you're taking seriously the limits of of the uh, of of consumption and of the environment that, on the planet that uh, we live in, and we have not left that mindset today, right? Like there, you you can probably in the last week find in mainstream outlets discussion of degrowth or you know questioning basically you know the 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 fundamental uh idea that like people need more stuff uh you know maybe we all you know it's it's basically a return to that call to, to to like we should all not be expecting to be getting more and you argue against that in the article yeah i mean fundamentally from the limits to growth in 1972 to degrowth um, they're all calling for a politics of, of less. And they, and they try to say this is at the aggregate scale, but much like the construction of GDP growth itself, the aggregate scale of society doesn't tell us a whole lot about the class divisions in our society. And the fact that, um, again, there's huge amounts of people who um, need more on a very material basis. They don't have health care, you know, 42 million people in this country suffer from hunger, what they call food insecurity. And um, there is not going to be a politics of less that can apply to everyone and really, you know, inspire and mobilize everyone because there are so many people in this society that need more. So politics of less at the aggregate doesn't take into account the class divisions where it's actually, like you said before, a kind of small minority who need to degrow, who need, who need, we, they need less, you know, like billionaires, they need a lot less. <laughs> um, but there's the most of us um, need to see a politics that is focused on what we have to win, what we have to gain. And, and, and a lot of those gains have to really focus on, um, you know, increasing access to the very fundamentals of life, which is an ecological principle. We are biological beings. We need food. We need shelter. We need healthcare. We need these things, and um, uh, we, and many people in our society need more of all those things. They need more and secure access to those things. It's striking to me that the right seems to understand this. The right has never officially said that they're going to, uh, you know, that for their base at least, that they're going to be delivering less uh, right now. For example, you know what Trump promises his base, or what European far right parties are promising is: you will get more. You do not have enough now. You will get more. The reason you don't have enough is because of you know immigrants or whoever, and so we're going to take away from them. But then we're going to give that to you, and they yeah. understand that that is a that that's just a a basic like political thing. Yeah. You have to offer more to people who who feel like and objectively do not have very much yeah i mean the main thing the right i would say the overarching populist politics of the right that has really organized and mobilized masses for the last 40 years has been we are going to lower your taxes <laughs> we're going to give you more money in your pocket by lowering your taxes and uh you can't have a better illustration of why environmental politics has failed in this regard to to note that the main policy instrument that people have liberals and professionals and policy wonks have championed to be the answer 
to the climate crisis is something called a carbon tax. <laughs> so the right's saying we're going to lower your taxes. The environmentalists are saying we have this really cool policy instrument called a tax that we're going to levy on the whole society. And you can understand why the right was able to just take this this idea and be like, well, this these these liberals want to tax your life. They want to make your life worse. They want to increase taxes. So how could we ever take that seriously? Well, and you only need to look to France and the yellow vests, right? Exactly. To see yeah. the really uh, exactly. what, what can happen when you try to carry out that kind of uh, that kind of approach to supposedly trying to fix the climate crisis. Um, you previously mentioned the professional middle class, uh, people like. Uh, I don't know, university professors. Not that you know anything yeah. about that. Uh, yeah. So so what's wrong with the professional middle class in the context of the environmental crisis? So a number of things. Um, the first is we should note that this class, if you go back to Barbara Ehrenreich and John Ehrenreich's original essay, they're really trying to grasp a kind of explosion of a particular type of professional white-collar knowledge worker that really exploded in the post-war era as a consequence of the massive federally subsidized expansion of higher education. So the increasing role of credentials and knowledge and degrees in, 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 in fundamentally segmenting and um, changing the very nature of the labor market. You have the rise of this professional managerial class right at the same time you have the rise of the new left and particularly environmental politics there's this real uh, dicey contradiction. I mean, at the heart of professional middle class or professional managerial class life is the desire to kind of use uh, this very meritocratic idea that if you, you know, get your credentials and you um, get your knowledge degrees, you're going to sort of skyrocket into this kind of comfortable, secure middle class existence. But if you are doing that um, at the same time, you kind of are learning about, as a, as a good professional class person, you're reading the New York Times, you're learning about the environmental crisis, you're listening to NPR, and you're, you're, you're sort of understanding like, oh, it's, um, it's me and my kind of middle class lifestyle that is complicit in causing this environmental crisis. So it's very easy to understand why this kind of, again, this austerity politics that's, politics that's focused a lot on, on sort of guilt and kind of shaming of of whatever it is, eating meats or whatever, uh, flying, um, whatever it is to, to really resonate with these people who are living this contradiction of like um, relatively comfortable material lives amidst, you know, knowledge of, of mass environmental planetary destruction. And, um, and, and the knowledge part really matters too, because as you probably hear a lot, like uh, the politics of climate in particular are fundamentally a kind of politics of knowledge. Do you believe or do you deny the science, right? You know, lionizing science and expert knowledge is not the type of thing that the masses of society will necessarily really get behind or, you know, that they don't want to get behind a social movement because it's scientifically correct. They want to understand how are they going to gain from a particular uh, uh, movement. And so the way in which climate politics gets sort of mired in this kind of very, very abstract discussions of you know how many parts per million should be in the atmosphere and um, whatever the scientific uh, debates are on how many degrees of warming we need, um, 
it it really resonates with professional managerial class people. But um, again, the base for that kind of knowledge politics is very narrow. Okay, so let's talk about what the kind of environmentalism that actually does appeal to mass numbers of people and that would actually have something to offer them would look like. Um, obviously, the Green New Deal is the, the forefront of uh, at the forefront of environmental activism today. It seems like your argument uh, is one that that recognizes that the kind of demands that the Green New Deal is putting forward that are beneficial to the, uh, the the working class, which is the majority of society, rather than demanding austerity of them or or demanding that some that they be dispossessed somehow. That that is the right spirit of demand to make, and so that we need to think about not only what demands to make, but how to assemble the social forces that can fight for a world that doesn't burn to a crisp. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, the Green New Deal, I feel like just taking a quote from AOC and Markey's resolution, they say in the resolution, all people of the United States deserve a job with a family sustaining wage, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations and retirement security. So right there, and it's only like a 14 page resolution, you have a clear politics that is centering the vast inequalities in our society and 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 making the green new deal an answer to those inequalities um and so the way i frame this is is actually we don't really need to reinvent the wheel we are already seeing the ways in which a mass popular politics can form around a basic principle that the necessities of life need to be decommodified um, so whether it's like Jeremy Corbyn saying, um, and now Bernie Sanders saying housing for all or Medicare for all, um, these kind of programs that are focused on decommodifying basic social needs, um, really appeal to people in a very insecure, highly commodified society. There's a way to connect that politics though, directly to ecological concerns, uh, because all the things people need in their lives, like transportation energy, food, all those sectors are actually directly responsible for uh, the crisis of climate change and the ecological crisis more broadly. So if we frame uh, the politics around decommodification of these very critical sectors, people, they won't need to understand the science of climate change to understand that this, this program is aiming to actually deliver cheaper electricity through you know, taking it under public ownership and basically setting up very cheap and uh, massive renewable energy infrastructures that can deliver cheaper energy to the to the masses of people. So um, we've actually only really skimmed the surface of this politics of decommodification. You know, we we all shout healthcare is a human right, um, and rightly so. But you know, for an ecological society, so should food. Food should be a human right. Energy should be a human right and housing. And and if we start to restructure and revolutionize those sectors, we're going to actually tackle the ecological crisis. Now, it's not going to be easy because all those sectors are controlled by hugely powerful for-profit private interests, whether it's landlords or fossil fuel companies or big agribusiness. So the fight for decommodification is actually trying to take on the small minority of people responsible for all this uh, degradation and crisis. And, and by taking them on, delivering uh, more security, more secure access to the things people need 
in their lives. And what are the practical ways of going about that that are specifically about creating a working class environmental politics? I mean, you emphasize the power of the working class coming from its disruptive capacity, you know, a point made by Adana Usmani and famously by Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward and poor people's right. movements. Like this is the, the, the movements that we want to create to, to win the stuff that we want. They, they have to be rooted in that disruptive power. So how do we go about doing that? I mean, the obvious uh, agent to look to is the labor movement, which you write a little bit about in the piece. Um, so maybe start there. How, how do we go about building this within the labor movement? On the one hand, you can sort of build a political platform around decommodification that's sort of focused on electoral victories and politicians like Bernie Sanders. But on the other, you're going to actually need to build power and leverage in the society itself. So as we know from those authors you mentioned, um, actually shutting society down and disruptive mass action can really force elites to answer to mass popular demands. And the environmental movement has always known this. Um, they have used direct action tactics since the 1970s and 1980s, whether it's in the anti-nukes movement or the kind of earth first style kind of tree sitting movement or the way in which climate activists now are blocking trains, coal trains, blocking pipelines. Um, but in that, in the kind of tradition of direct action environmentalism, it's always kind of uh, these kind of outsider uh, agitator type of direct action activists who are blocking some sort of, um, you know, big, dirty infrastructure from the outside. Um, so the labor movement, uh, the working class uh, movement, obviously, has more strategic power because it's on the inside of the workplace where it actually can shut down the system from the inside. And that's where workers and the labor movement has always kind of had that power um, within. So we haven't seen a lot of this type of disruption from the labor movement, basically shutting down um, industries and public systems from the inside to demand changes. But we see, you know, when the West Virginia teachers went on strike, you know, it took a couple of weeks to achieve a whole suite of popular demands. Uh, they were in a Republican state. So the, the, the people are starting to relearn this, this kind of power that the working class has. Um, but one of the narratives that environmentalists always sort of are anxious and bemoan is that the, the traditional labor movement in the kind of, uh, whether the pipeline fitting industry, the building trades, the the trade unions are not particularly on board with types of uh, environmental politics. But, um, you know, if we take Jane McAlevey's advice, she thinks the most strategic sectors right now are education and uh, healthcare, And um, those types of sectors can also fold in very easily um, green demands. And uh, uh, they already are, actually. The Massachusetts Teachers Association has called for and voted on to support a national teacher strike for a Green New Deal. <laughs> um, I don't know if they're going to be able to pull it off, but um, that's the type of um, militant action where I think uh, particularly workers in these kind of social reproduction public systems can very easily kind of uh, talk about how their strikes and their actions are actually trying to achieve larger common goods or larger public goods. 
um, that can easily fold in the, the, the environmental crisis we're facing, which is really a public crisis that requires public collective action. Um, so even though, you know, the coal miners might not be on our side or the, even uh, sometimes the steel workers or something like that, we can build coalitions amongst all sorts of different types of workers to uh, uh, call for this kind of larger public Green New Deal that can improve workers' lives across the board in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it's important to focus on teachers unions and others who, uh, like the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and I think SEIU recently signed on to, the Service Workers Union recently signed on to supporting the Green New Deal. But there are also examples from American labor history of workers who are right at the heart of these extractive, dirty industries not being hopelessly reactionary on these issues. Yeah. I mean, you cite Tony Mazaki, uh, who was with the oil, chemical, and atomic work, workers who you would not expect to be uh, at the forefront of, you know, fighting for a, a cleaner planet. But, uh, you know, you you have him talking about uh, the chemicals that poisoned his union's rank and file eventually make their way into communities outside yeah. through the air, soil, and waterways. The historian Trish Kale has written for us about even miners themselves in the 70s uh, coming around on uh, wanting to fight for a, a more uh, having a you know having a vision of environmental justice basically. Who the, the coal miners would be the last ones who you would expect who would be fighting for that kind of thing. But the way that that agenda took hold in uh, in their coal miners union was through the same way that leftists think that you make any kind of change within unions which is like a group of workers you know getting together at the rank and file level and organizing to fight for that stuff and i know that recently um in countries like germany more industrial unions have been taking some kinds of climate action because it's become so dire that even in those uh, potentially environmental degradatory degradatory industries people are coming around that we have to take action soon. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem like those kinds of industrial and extractive workers uh, are hopelessly lost to not never coming around on an environmental agenda. Yeah. And one example I call upon in 2015, um, a bunch of refinery workers went on strike across the country um, and they were part of the United Steel Workers Union. And while they didn't really explicitly sort of fold in environmental politics to their to their demands, they were basically calling for more safety, health and safety precautions in a in a industry that had grown more um, uh, sort of susceptible to speed up and and accidents and dangerous exposure to chemicals. And um, but if you start to look at their demands and you start to see the types of things they were organizing around. It was about health. It was about their their the health of not just their bodies themselves, but their communities, their water, their um, uh, the environment around them. And, and, and if we really are concerned with disruptive capacity on the part of these workers, it would be really nice if the workers in the belly of the fossil fuel beast are the ones that are actually organizing to shut those systems down because that will really get the fossil fuel industries and elites on the top of those systems to really pay attention. Well, Matt, we 
got through this conversation and only said the vast majority like half a dozen times so i guess that's that's pretty good <laughs> i think i said huge majority at one point <laughs> yeah i noticed i figured that was what you were doing just say it just embrace it just say the vast majority <laughs> matt thanks so much thanks so much for having me the vast majority is produced by sarah hurd at studio 10 in chicago you can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 